Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Thomson Reuters Westlaw Edge and Answer One. Their virtual reception service is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week to handle inbound calls, schedule appointments, and even respond to emails. Check them out at answerone.com forward slash podcast for a special offer. That's answer the number one.com. And now on to the show. Welcome to the AVA Journal Legal Rebels podcast, where we talk to men and women who are remaking the legal profession, changing the way the law is practiced, and setting standards that will guide us into the future. Welcome to the Legal Rebels podcast by the ABA Journal. I'm Stephanie Francis Ward, and today I'm speaking with Max Miller. When he was in our inaugural class of Legal Rebels in 2009, he had recently left a management job with H.J. Heinz Co. to lead the Innovation Practice Institute at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. Welcome to the show, Max. Thanks, Stephanie. Great to be here. Great. So you left your position at Pitt in 2010 to go in-house with big brothers and sisters, and then that was followed by working for various others' employers, often involved with strategic support for innovation and planning and branding. And now you're back in academics as director of entrepreneurial studies at Washington and Jefferson College, right? That's correct. Okay. And I was curious, your job now at Washington and Jefferson, is that pretty similar to what you did at Pitt Law and that you're teaching students and talking to them about conceiving and carrying out new ideas in both programs? Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, they're very similar in that regard. Uh, I have much more of a teaching role in terms of curricular content here at W&J than I did at Pitt. And are there many big differences between working with undergraduates and law students? Absolutely. Yeah, there. Uh, it's certainly uh, the teaching style here is different, um, as you can imagine. I mean, some of these I teach students that are freshmen, and I teach students that are seniors. So certainly, with the freshmen, they're they're you know, have a different experience level and attention spans are different and that sort of thing, but. Conceptually, though, I mean, really the concepts of driving value that I was trying to uh, express, you know, at Pitt are the same ones that, you know, that we're addressing here. Uh, It's just in a a larger and wider curricular format. I am curious as well. It seems like with your students now, particularly perhaps the freshmen and the sophomores, this is one of the first generations of young people to come to college who have grown up with so much more technology than we ever even imagined. And I'm wondering if they have some really interesting ideas that maybe people from older generations never thought of. And if so, how do you pull that out of them and help them learn how to take their ideas and run with it and do something really neat with them? Yeah, sure. I mean, certainly the generation is different and they certainly have different perspectives on, you know, the marketplace and and the workplace. But in in terms of, you know, how we sort of call these things from them, it's really just creating an environment that allows for the free flow of ideas, especially for the freshmen and sophomores. I, I don't use a textbook. We use all 
contemporary topics. So they're having to present an article every week, and we're talking about real-time issues that we see in Bloomberg and how they impact their lives today. Uh, and that helps them feel like they're talking about topics that are relevant, but it also, I think, gives them the permission, really, to talk about you know how their ideas can have an impact today, you know, right away. Have you noticed in between teaching at the law school and with the undergraduates now, is there a difference in the way students communicate with their teachers online and their expectations for online communication? Because that's kind of part of innovation and technology as well, right, is how we communicate and work together online. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there's all kinds of teaching products that are out there now. Uh, practically speaking, I'd say I communicate a lot more with students by text and through, you know, our cloud-based systems. Uh, and I try to integrate platforms like podcasts. You know, I've integrated podcasts into the last two semesters to allow them to, you know, engage with the material in a way that they're used to. Uh, and then also, you know, very simple things like, you know, they don't have to present anything in writing to me. They can present it to me by email or just through uploading through Google Docs. And so all those those practical technical offerings that are out there now, that's how we communicate day to day. Do you have a preference at this point between teaching law students or teaching undergraduates? I don't because I really don't have a preference. I, I enjoy teaching, first of all, but I do think that there's you know, so much room now for having dialogues about how you generate value, you know, in today's market and the way that the market is evolving. Uh, And that really is no different, you know, whether it's a graduate student or undergraduate student, except for the fact that, you know, the graduate student may have already been in the workplace, right? And so what they contribute to that narrative and how they approach it may be slightly different. Whereas the undergrads, you know, haven't had work experience and a lot of it is really trying to help shape in their mind what the market is going to be like that they're entering uh, and whether or not they're you know, going to enter that as their own boss, you know, as an entrepreneur or whether they're just going to take the entrepreneurial mindset into whatever workplace they end up being in. How did you get involved in teaching in higher ed? I think that's something many attorneys would like to do, but it's hard to take it from an adjunct spot to, you know, a full-time job. Yeah, it's sort of been the story of my career that I just get these calls out of the blue and I happen to be (laughs) in the place, you know, to accept them. But uh, at least when I first got into academia officially, you know, at Pitt, it was because I was already running, you know, a business and I still am. You know, I was an entrepreneur that Pitt Law knew that I was out there, you know, running a business and they wanted to start what initially was called, you know, a law and entrepreneurship program and then you know, we rebranded it to the Innovation Practice Institute. Uh, and so they were looking for someone who was out there, you know, in, in the trenches. And I happened to be doing that. And I had already been teaching for the Kauffman Foundation for the Fast Track program. So I was teaching small businesses just on the side because I had a, a passion around it. So I already had some teaching experience, already had entrepreneurial experience. And the two just kind of converged when, you know, that opportunity came. Uh, and that's really how I got into academia from that point. And, and when I took that role, I was really a staff person who happened to teach, right? Whereas now I'm as hired as a 
professor to teach. And now I'm also doing, you know, lots of other programmatic things that are not curricular in nature, like, you know, running incubators and, and the like. I see. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to talk to you about the business that you started. We'll be right back. Is your firm experiencing missed calls, empty voicemail boxes, and potential clients you'll never hear from again? Enter Answer One Virtual Receptionist. They're more than just an answering service. Answer One's available 24 seven. They can even schedule appointments, respond to emails, integrate with Clio, and much more. Answer One helps make sure your clients have the experience they deserve. Give them a call at 800-ANSWER-1 or visit them at answerone.com forward slash podcast for a special offer. That's answer the number one.com. The Insights from the Edge podcast series brings you the latest legal trends as inside attorneys sit down with industry experts. Stay informed on the latest topics, including our latest episode on five ways to identify the best AI. Check out this episode on The Legal Current from Thomson Reuters to learn how to evaluate AI solutions to ensure you have the best tools for your legal research. And we're back. I'm Stephanie Francis-Ward, and on today's episode of the ABA Journal's Legal Rebels podcast, I'm speaking with Max Miller, a 2009 rebel who used to teach innovation at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law and is now teaching innovation to undergraduates at Washington and Jefferson University. So, Max, throughout your career as a lawyer, and perhaps before, you have had your business raise your glass which is a marketing group that works with luxury liquor brands, right? That's how we started, yeah. I mean, Raise Your Spirits was really a restaurant concept in my own mind. (laughs) I got it wrong. I'm sorry. Okay. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Okay, go ahead. (laughs) Yeah, no worries. And, you know, I quickly dismissed the whole restaurant concept after looking at, you know, the financials and just understanding kind of the profitability pressures, you know, in that industry. But then uh, quickly evolved it into uh, what we then called an experiential marketing firm, or really a sensory marketing firm that really, like you say, was focused on luxury spirits at the time. That would have been, what, in 06? Mm -hmm. And the whole definition of, of luxury has sort of evolved significantly now to the point where it's really more about you know, authenticity and, and knowledge and artisanship. So we, we've, we've kind of drifted away from the luxury component and shifted almost 98% now to really being a support function for sales teams. And we happen to integrate tastings into those sales functions. So I'm going to stop you for a moment because I think what you just said is really interesting. How we view luxury is different now. Is that what I'm hearing? Absolutely. I mean, it's and you notice it even when you're looking at, you know, brands that we define as luxury. If you look at, you know, Range Rover, for example, or any of these car or jewelry types of offerings, it's not so much the notion of flair you know, and panache, it's really about, like say, this authenticity and having some kind of connection with the product or service that's a little more than just having it so that other people know that you have it. It's more about, you know, understanding the 
history of that product or service or something about that brand resonates with the consumer so that it's more than just a, a flashy item. That there's that it, it serves some practical purpose, but also because you know the backstory or the history or the artisanship that went into it, then that creates a connectivity. And it's that connectivity that many brands are trying to gain now with their customers. That's a really interesting point. So do you think that having your own business, and in your case, your own business, is raise your spirits, right? Yes. That's the name of it. Okay, good. Okay. (laughs) Having your own business in an area that you seem to really enjoy, does that help you teach innovation and marketing? And if so, how? Yeah, it really has helped. First of all, you know, everything, and I tell the students this, you know, anything I say to them, I've either experienced it myself or have colleagues around me who have experienced it. And, you know, I always bring those colleagues into the classroom as well so that they can hear, you know, firsthand what it's really like to run a business, start a business, have a business succeed and have businesses fail. I mean, I've been a part of startups that failed too, (laughs) you know, in in this Mm -hmm. journey. Well, you have to be, though, to be successful at the end, right? You have to go out there and, and learn from it and take chances. You do have to take chances. I always use this term, you know, a comfort with ambiguity, which is something I used to tell the law students and what I tell the students now is that, that some people are comfortable with ambiguity, right? But you have to be uh, if you're going to, especially if you're entering into a, a market where there's no prior data to suggest, you know, mm-hmm. if it's a brand new product that no one's experienced, then you can't get more uncertain than that. So in that regard, it certainly has helped me communicate, you know, the way the market is now uh, for the students. Uh, but it's also helped me to create the content that I think students at that age need to know to sort of dispel the myths, you know, and to be really clear about how difficult it can be on the one hand. But, you know, on the other hand, how if you are successful, it can be really fulfilling. Uh, but you do have to, to, to be willing to put in a lot of effort because your days aren't linear anymore. I see. I'm curious, are there things we can learn from what young people are interested in to spot trends? I think most people with teenagers their teenagers might really be into SoundCloud rappers, for instance, who seem to be doing some kind of crazy things. And I, I, I'm not so old that I don't realize that rappers have been doing crazy things, you know, for, for what we see as crazy for a long time. But I think that sometimes just we automatically kind of dismiss what young people are into, but they might really be forecasting trends. They absolutely are. And, and I think, you know, it's worth making a distinction between what's a shift and what is the trend. And what I hear within your question is sort of, you know, are are there some shifts happening in the marketplace that are indicators of what a trend might be, right? Because some of those things like SoundCloud, to your point, in any kind of that, you know, the DIY kind of culture of do it yourself Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. definitely a trend now, right? But in terms of, you know, what's the underlying shift is the, the way that, younger folks and younger consumers are consuming digital media is shifting away from traditional paths to new paths yet to be discovered, right? My, my nine-year-old mm-hmm. 
is a part of the Fortnite mm -hmm. um, trend, mm -hmm. you know, that's mm -hmm. going on now. Oh, I know. I have mine are too. Yep. Okay. So, so you know. And then, but oh, what's yeah. really intriguing to me about that is two things. One is the way that they're communicating, you know, is, is simultaneously they're on FaceTime with one another. And then they're also messaging through the game and they're talking through the game. So there's actually three different communication platforms happening at once in that game. Right. Right. And so it's sort of like the way that ESPN has evolved over the years. And we don't, we kind of take it for granted now, but I mean, I certainly remember when it was just two talking heads on the screen, right? Now mm -hmm. it's two talking heads, byline on the bottom, ping coming through your app, Right. And tell, and then they're telling right. you what content is coming up. I mean, there's five different information streams happening. And so to circle back to the shift notion with the young people, I think that their capacity to manage multiple data streams and multiple platforms is the shift that we're experiencing. And the question will be, you know, how is it that, you know, as, as a consumer products person, you know, I'm thinking, well, you know, how is it that you're going to, communicate authenticity to someone who is used to getting the information through multiple platforms and which platform do you use and how do you make it as seamless as possible? So there are certainly, that, that's just one example in terms of, you know, nine-year-olds, but I see it now with students looking at, if I'm talking about something in class, I'm naturally going to ask them, well, just go to their website on your phone because their phone is already out. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd much rather have them. I'd much rather have them, you know, doing something class related than, you know, messaging their friends. And then there's that connection. I know of at least two hip hop groups that had very successful tours, where they were more collectives, and the members met each other through the online games. As you mentioned, well, they would talk to each other while playing the game in the message boards and in real time. Interesting. Yeah. 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 There you go. There you go. So even the socialization is, is much different. Right. And, you know, that old adage, you should never talk to people you don't know online. I mean, of course, there's still some truth to that. But it's, you know, if you can get a record deal in a really successful hip hop collective, then I, I don't know. So I am curious, too, and we're kind of talking about stuff we normally don't talk about, but I find it very interesting. Do you have advice, I mean, based on your work with branding and marketing and looking at, you know, what young people are interested in and, and just focusing on what people will spend their money. Based on all of that, do you have advice for attorneys on how they can be innovative and offer services to the public that the public is willing to spend money on? Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, at its base, and this is, you know, what we used to talk a lot about at Pitt, which was the law industry is a service business, right? So if you just start looking at it as a service, then that opens up the, um, you know, the dialogue to talk about, well, what, what makes a customer value one service over another, right? That there will be certain offerings that are at parity across the competition, Right. Can mm -hmm. everybody, every lawyer can do the filings, right. And get them stamped at the courthouse. And, you know, certain provisions are going to be standard in contracts, right. And certain negotiation tactics are going to be standard, right. All those things, if you push those to the side, 
then what is it about the service that you deliver as an attorney that's going to be different from someone else, right? And then you have to start wrapping in all the the other halo value proposition. And so when, you know, most of my experience has been in the, you know, commercial M&A deal world. And in that world, the lawyers that I know, they're a large part of their value proposition is around their connectivity. So the ability of an attorney to connect a business with capital, for example, or connect them with some kind of other expert that the lawyer has come across in her travels. And now she's able to, you know, make that recommendation. And then if you're a business and you've heard, here's a lawyer who connected me with another value that's outside of the law specifically, then that's a good thing, right? One piece of advice is you have to walk in the shoes of the customer that's paying for the services and the customer that's paying for the services. Some of them, will look at the legal service itself as turnkey and commoditized, some of them. Others will look at it as, I'm looking at this person who's the attorney as kind of a full package because I'm just, and I'm using the entrepreneur scenario, if I'm a professor, for example, who has an invention, I don't know anything else except the specifics of my invention. (laughs) I don't know anything about the law. I don't know anything about the, all the business issues, I don't know anything about the regulatory piece, I think all those other pieces that would make my idea able to be commercialized, I need somebody else to help me with. And so if you're a lawyer in that space, you want to be able to be that connector and provide a lot of other offerings other than just the turnkey legal pieces. Okay. And you mentioned earlier in the show that importance about being authentic, with the product you want people to purchase. What's a good way for an attorney to have his or her product appear authentic that people will want to purchase it? I think thought leadership. I mean, I think that's why you see, you know, senior lawyers and lawyers who are aspiring to be senior lawyers are certainly, you know, in the firm context, but also in-house of becoming experts in a certain area where you're, you're actually talking about you know, shifts that are happening so that, and and these may not be legal issues that exist today, but they're on the horizon. And if you're able to provide that kind of thought leadership, I think that that's a competitive aspect for, for lawyers because you're taking yourself out of the transactional part of the relationship and putting it into more of a, uh, you know, making it more of a relationship than a transaction is what I mean. And that part of building the relationship is trust. And a part of building trust is people believing that you know what you're talking about, right? And so thought leaders do that. That's why getting on as many panels and writing articles and, you know, being in environments where people understand that your legal skills are important, uh, but equally important is your capacity to to predict that may, you know, happen for the client. What do you think about, for someone who wants to set themselves up like that, calling themselves the thought leader? I'm against it. I think that's a great point, mm-hmm. that you wouldn't say it. You wouldn't okay. say those words because it, what, what, what should happen is it should be evident, right? And, it's, and it takes some time. Okay. So you shouldn't put thought leader in your LinkedIn profile? No, I wouldn't. Okay. I wouldn't. Okay. Just because it's, I don't, you shouldn't have to. 
You really shouldn't have to. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe as a joke, you could get a T-shirt that said Thought Leader. No, I'm kidding. Yeah. Uh-huh. There you go. That's a great point because okay. you want to, you do want to say some things that are going to indicate you're competent, right? But at the same token, uh-huh. yeah, it's, it's, you wouldn't just come out and say it. No. <laughs> Because it seems like I have seen that before. I'm not thinking of a specific example, but it seems like I've seen that before. Yeah, I, I have seen it. I'm not saying that people haven't. Oh, you done have? It, okay. Yeah, I, I have seen it. I just, it's not in, ter- in terms of the question, advice that I would give. Uh, one piece is uh-huh. I wouldn't come out and say that. I would, I would okay. let the, the, the information and experience speak for itself. Okay. And on that note, that's everything we have time for today. Thank you so much for joining us, Max. Thank you. Real pleasure. And listeners, thank you for tuning in. If you like what you heard today, please rate us and find us in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Google Play Music, Google Podcasts, and or your favorite podcasting app. We'll see you next time for another episode of the ABA Journal Legal Rebels Podcast. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalRebels.com, LegalTalkNetwork.com, subscribe via iTunes and RSS, find both the ABA Journal and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, or download the free apps from ABA Journal and Legal Talk Network in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.